Organissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair, and beauty source, and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today at www.arganissima.com. Arganissima, New York. Your beauty is our... Folks, welcome back to the iHealth channel, iHealth Radio, radio host, Hurricane H. New day, new show, new topic as usual, a new interesting topic. I try to always bring something new. And uh, in the realm of health and health settings and medical and uh, even writing, uh, we've talked about a lot of different topics. And uh, today's topic is going to be a little bit of a, an interesting one uh, in the aspect of it, because it's something that sometimes we shy away from. It's not a topic we talk about a lot in, in the medicinal world and or even life because it's taboo almost, but it's an interesting. And I have with me a guest who will actually guide us through this, this discussion uh, and enlighten us with it. And uh, her background is a very interesting one because she is actually a uh, uh, anesthesiologist <laughs> and she is an actual doctor, award-winning doctor. And also she is an author, a novelist, and she, she's, she writes thrillers and she uses some of the stuff that she knows in the medicinal world into, into the write-ups and the writing. And uh, we want to hear about all that. So it's a pretty interesting uh, discussion we have. And really it's something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm calling it actually living well with a living will. <laughs> so, 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 so that might give up, you know, the discussion today or given, you know, what the topic is, but uh, without any further ado, I have with me Tammy Uliano, and uh, you know she's all the way from Florida, and uh, we're gonna be having a great time. So, Tammy, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I, you know, you and I connected, uh, and I just loved the theme. And and I know we're gonna talk about your book, and we definitely want to talk about your book specifically today. But but before we get into all that, let's talk about your background and and uh, as i mentioned you know award-winning doctor and your specialty specifically and then we're going to talk about the topic of the hour like the the living will i guess and the proxy and all the other stuff okay which, which you Great. cover in your book so talk to us i'm a, i'm a floridian since childhood and uh, went to university of florida for undergrad and decided to go to medical school primarily i wanted to do research and then somewhere in there realized i didn't want to kill mice my whole career. Um, so I just finished my medical degree and then I started working on um, full-scale human simulation that was being invented there. And I got to be part of the program and it was awesome and amazing. And I fell in love with obstetric anesthesia. And so I spent the next 15, 20 years doing research in that and um, teaching using simulation, which was brand new at the time. So that was a, a great experience. And that, that features in the book a little bit as well. And then interestingly, um, I said that our medical students needed their own textbook for anesthesia. And my mentor said, okay, let's write one. And I said, we can do that. And so he and I sat down for the next couple of years and wrote a, an introductory textbook. And when we finished it, he's, this is an 80 year old German man. He said, 
let's write something else. And he decided we would write a mystery, which was a blast working with him to, to try to write a mystery. But unfortunately, he fell ill and passed away before we got very far. But I, I had the bug then. So I stepped back from some of my administrative stuff and started taking classes to learn how to write fiction. And, and Fatal Intent came out of that um, and published last March. So it was a long road. And I've had a few twists and turns, but um, but it's awesome. It's it's. I was at the right place at the right time. It was it was time to. I'd, I'd reached my goals in medicine, and I'm still practicing. Love taking care of patients. Love teaching, but doing research. I was kind of bored with that, and I really don't like being an administrator. So I, I played to my strengths and and pivoted away from all of that toward uh, toward something better. Wow. Thank you, Tammy, for for that great intro. And uh, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, that we've captured in a very little moment here. Uh, the word, the, the book, the name, fatal intent. I, I mean, that's deep, and we're gonna we need to, to dissect that, you know, in its own. And I know we're gonna have a half of this show. It's probably gonna be just that, if not the, the majority of the show. But I did wanna just ask about you, you mentioned obstetrics. Uh, anesthesia. Uh, can you just elaborate on that for people that may not understand, you know, what that entails? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So primarily, I, it's not my only um, assignment, but but when I'm assigned to labor and delivery, we're taking care of women in labor. So a lot of labor epidurals to relieve their pain and then cesarean sections. So a lot of anesthesia for that. And then we're a tertiary care center. So we get the, the super sick pregnant ladies. So we'll go to the intensive care unit and help take care of them there and, uh, and take care of them long before their baby's going to be born, helping to manage their blood pressures and things like that. Well, thank you. I mean, again, I, it's just, I know some people are like, well, that's, that's an obvious, you know, obstetrics and anesthesia. I mean, you could put one on one together, but, but you're right. I mean, you just, just, you know, covered a couple of things that we might not think of. And, and one I mean, epidural stuff, I, I've seen that in action personally, and it is not fun. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's very uh, intricate in a way, because you have to have the right stuff. And, you know, it's a very, uh, very sensitive area where those those needles go and <laughs> you can't it make is. a mistake you can't make a mistake with that stuff it's very you know uh, dangerous uh and uh but you're right it does alleviate the pain and it helps you know the delivery into to to a smoother way for a lot of folks and uh so i mean thank you for doing that because a lot of moms would probably be like yes without it i couldn't have done it right so Thank you for that. And then also, like you said, for those people that have literally like C-sections and things like that, certainly, you know, you can't do it awake. So you have to be under <laughs> and, and, and you guys come in to do that. Now, I know anesthesia is not easy and it's, a, it's, a, it's an art in itself and uh, there's a lot of risk, you know, and, and, and can you just on and this is I know it's not the core topic of today, but if you just want to ease up, you know, because people sometimes are tense about it, they're afraid. And, you know, what can you tell people just to ease their mind about anesthesia as a whole? I mean. Sure, it's incredibly safe, um, especially for healthy people. The ones that that really get us um, our our blood pumping is the super duper sick people whose hearts aren't pumping very well, or whose lungs don't work very well, or who are having super major operations. But but for the vast majority of people, it's incredibly safe and. Uh, obviously you're going to be nervous it's the the loss of control is very upsetting to people um but it is very very safe and um our big things are 
putting you to sleep and waking you up, but also managing your pain because we're trying to get away from narcotics. So the things you might get offered are lots of what's called regional anesthesia, where we put numbing medicine around nerves that are the ones that are supplying the surgical area to try and keep you from having pain. So similar to epidurals, but we do the, the nerve blocks in different places. And those are really great options. Um, and other areas of research that are important is things like people talking about having um, post-operatively having mental thought issues, uh, cognitive dysfunction, we call it, where they just feel a little bit foggy longer than you'd expect. So that's a big area of research. But um, obviously talk to your anesthesiologist. You'll see them preoperatively and then again postoperatively. And uh, we work very closely with the surgeons. It's a, it's a wonderful profession being able to take care of people when they're at their most vulnerable. Um, but if we do it right, you largely don't remember us. So, <laughs> so it can well, be a little bit thankless. Well, I, I, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing for sure, you guys literally uh, help lives and save lives because I, I don't know what we'd be doing without anesthesia uh, in, in a lot of surgery and, and a lot of different you know, procedures. You can't possibly operate and uh, you make it smooth enough that people go through it and, you know, they eventually recover before they know it. I mean, they're they're good. They're better. <laughs> I mean, they still have to have the recovery point, you know, post, you know, surgery. But but at least the the whole I mean, without it. Imagine people being opened up, you know, and, and, and the sutures and everything while they're still feeling the pain. I cannot possibly imagine, which probably centuries ago, that was the case. And it was, yes. You know, yeah. So you guys are really, uh, it's, it's, it's a great thing that you guys do out there. And uh, I don't think we could live without, you know, anesthesia any longer in, in this, this universe we live in. So again, thank you for that, for, for every one that you've <laughs> You're saved. Welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and so, so the other thing you mentioned something about the... Um, S simulation, uh, I guess, right? Uh, am I? Are we talking about like uh, augmented reality stuff, or are we? Doing we haven't gone there yet, although that's certainly someplace that we should be doing it. What we started with was we actually have a mannequin, a plastic mannequin, and we um, at University of Florida they developed lungs that actually move up and down and have breath sounds and consume oxygen and make carbon dioxide just like a normal person and. Uh, there's pulses that you can feel and you can take his blood pressure and all those sorts of things. He has a, a mouth and everything for the residents to practice putting in breathing tubes and we can make it so they can't get it in and then they have to practice what you do next. And, and so we use it for giving them real life scenarios that's actually full immersion as far as they have to do everything. They can't, we can't just say, hey, what would you do if the blood pressure goes down, they actually watch it, they see the blood pressure go down, they have to pick the right medications and administer them properly in the right doses. Um, so it's a nice way for teaching medical students and residents before they are actually given that situation. And especially for rare things that they might never see, it's nice if they can practice them a couple times before they graduate and then see them in private practice. Wow, that that is impressive. I mean, something like that, I mean, uh... Uh, it, it's just, it's got to be an experience. And first of all, just the technology itself. I mean, the fact that you have something that is not alive, but it's almost alive, <laughs> you know, it's right. alive, you know, it's like, uh, it's amazing. And uh, I know there's a lot of discovery and a lot of research that takes place in medicine. And today we are just, you know, uh, cutting edge in a lot of areas. Obviously, there's more, I mentioned augmented reality, which is coming up more in terms of 
anatomy and things like that, but I think it can get, you know, even better. And I've seen some stuff that's out there that, you know, yeah. people are dabbling with. So it's, it's getting there. I mean, you know, soon you can almost simulate a whole operation without even having to have, you know, a real, you know, anything in front of you, but still be able to do all the, the dice. I don't think they, they do that already. I think I've seen something. We like have that. robotics surgeries. Yeah. We there hate them, but they do them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, listen, it's one thing, I mean, to trust a, you know, a machine and, and the human factor is, is an important factor. I'm assuming right. uh, you can't get rid of that. That's the most important part. But hey, some people say like the future will be with robots. I don't know. Uh, it's it's a challenging, you know, a world we live in and things are moving fast. So we'll see how that plays. But until then, we appreciate, you know, medicine and the doctors out there and surgeons doing it, you know, uh, in and out and really being with us. So now let's take it to the next level. And uh, the writing, you being, you know, uh, writing, first of all, a, a book about, you know, how to do anesthesia and all that stuff originally. That was your first, I guess, besides your your studies and educational stuff. You know, I think that was the first actual book that you put together. It is. Yes. Right. I, so, so that got you going. It did. Yeah. Um, I called it do no harm while I was writing it. And then when I found a publisher, they, they said that that title was too common. And if you look on Amazon, there's several books and a movie called do no harm. So, so fatal intent as a title came out later. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea for it came out of life. It was always something that fascinated me how to end, you know, you, you put your dog to sleep when their quality of life is is poor but we can't do that for people and uh when i was a, a kid in, in elementary school there was um karen ann quinlan which i don't many some of your listeners may remember way back then in the 70s um and she was a, a person who was in a persistent vegetative state and there was disagreement on, in her family about whether she should be um allowed to die or, or kept alive. And we did a debate on it in my class. And, and I don't remember which side I was on in the debate, but, but it stuck with me that that was a, a very challenging issue. And, and I, during my extremely atheist, I know everything sort of college days um, and early medical school, I, I thought, you know, you just say they're aren't going to live anymore. And you invite everybody to the bedside to say goodbye and you give them an injection and you're done. And um, that just seemed very black and white to me. And, and as you grow and get a little older and more mature, you realize there's a lot more gray in between. And, um, and so I, I don't have it quite so clearly in my head what the right answer is, but I know that it's something that families need to discuss because I have seen some very sad end of life situations where there's nothing, there's no clear guidance from the patient and the family disagrees. And, and what an awful time to be unable to communicate properly with your loved ones when one of you thinks that dad wants to be unplugged and the other one says, no, there's still hope. And, and it just doesn't have to be that way if people will have these discussions well before the time when that information is needed. Well, thank you, Tammy. I mean, that that is a very, very, very difficult decision for anyone. I mean, we live life happy and uh, everybody, you know, really, we, we enjoy life and we don't want to live life. And, you know, for the person that is at that point and bad, then, you know, sometimes they're not 
completely gone and they still have the ability to discuss hospice, let's say. And then you've you got the folks that are already like uh, intubated or already under, you know, machinery and stuff. And, you know, you don't even know what's the next move. And, and I'll, and I'll talk about a situation that happened to me and, and I had to make that decision actually in my life, oh. which is a tough decision. And, uh, and I don't mind sharing it, but um, it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult place to be. And uh, it, so it takes faith. It takes, you know, a lot of different things and sometimes science and faith together to actually make that call. And it's, it's not easy. And uh, you don't let, you don't want to let people go. That's the other part as, as a son, for example, in my case, it was difficult uh, and luckily, I don't have brothers or sisters. It was just me, <laughs> so it's a little different. And I didn't have to uh, talk to uncles and aunts about, you know, that, to make that call. But but sometimes, to your point, it could be a very di- divided discussion and a, and a huge debate. And I think you know one of the things we want to extract today is the the fact that the ability that each alive person should have their will and you know their proxy the surrogates and all the stuff and all the documentation in place to determine what happens like for example um one thing that happened and what i'm referring to is my dad he he was terminal and um you know with prostate cancer and uh uh, we were told that he had a few months to live and then of course he was doing good and then all of a sudden you know things started like you know going very very sideways quick mm-hmm. and uh you know he was he was coherent but i mean on and off and then he got paralyzed and then that you know that was getting worse and um so luckily i had a proxy so i had the uh, the documentation and uh i had i had already a, a dni and dnr and so uh, uh that was important and when when the time came to you know from the hospital and they had to to call to make the call do we want to plug him or not that's when my problem you know happened and one thing that they said if you do not submit your documentation we will just do it so so i mean for for our listeners and our viewers i mean it's it's a very impossible situation when you know you know you have the authority but then somebody else now is is challenging you if you don't submit this document within the hour we're going to do something that you know you're not even you know clear about and like do not touch him do not mess with him do not anything i have documentation i have full authority here's the document do not you know uh resuscitate or 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 intubate now this discussion you know happened you know with my father before and you know we made sure that we have all the documents and stuff and i even talk to my colleague. I, I'm in the healthcare, so I have doctor friends. And so I talked to them and I got some of their advice, medical advice. Um, even the oncologist at the time, he says, listen, you know, only a few months to go, he let him live the way he is and uh, enjoy his, his last days, you know, in, in no pain. And we had them on the medication and stuff. And so when it happened, you know, we, we, we had that, but actually I had to literally fax the documentation to the hospital and, you know, that same morning uh, that they, they, they hospitalized him. And that was actually his last couple of weeks. So uh, he, they said, you know, we, he's doing not good. Uh, do we want to do this stuff to not touch him, allow him to live his life. And if he's going to make pull through, he's going to pull through. If not, there's nothing we can do about it. And uh, so that was it. And ultimately they never did. And, you know, uh, he lived a couple of weeks, uh, you know, on his own and uh, eventually, you know, he passed. But, but that experience, you know, I, I, it was an eye opener because had I not have the document with me and we didn't have the, the actual health proxy available, they would have actually plugged him. And then now I'll be stuck with the decision. Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he good? Is he, what am I supposed to do? I mean, and, and it is very difficult to tell because there's brainwaves, there's other things that happen and, 
mechanically speaking, he'll be functional. But, you know, uh, I mean, from a religious aspect, does he, is a soul still there or not? I mean, so there's a whole debate with the religious aspect of it. So it was a, a very tough time to make that call before. But but when it came to it, I had to to make a decision. Now, that's easier than other people, because some people don't have that option. They put them into the, the machine and then now you have to decide when you unplug. It happened to my best friend and his mom, you know, uh, you know, was in the machine, you know, for about a week and they had to make the call. And it's very difficult to make the call when you don't know, you know, you always kind of hope that that person is still going to pull through, but do you really know that they're still there or not? And that's, that's something that even science today doesn't really hundred percent know right. because, you know, they can tell you, we see a little wave, they're responsive to stimulus, whatever, but you know, what does that mean? <laughs> it's electrical signals. There's many other factors that can, you know, be interpreted as such. And therefore you're not, you're not. And so it's a decision that is very difficult. So again, from my experience, uh, it's tough. Now, now in your experience as, as a uh, anesthesia, I mean, anesthesia is, is where you go to your point. You said for, for an animal, we can put them to sleep and, you know, peacefully in they go. Um, and, uh, some people can actually challenge that and they say, you know what, well, it's not lethal injection, <laughs> you know, it's a couple of punishment in, in, in the criminal world. Right? So obviously there's more to that. I mean, some people can debate, you know, religious science, sometimes, you know, both those things, you know, get convoluted and uh, different opinions and different views and angles can, can change the dynamics, but, but really it's, it's, uh, the importance is we need to make sure that people have some sort of documentation in there to avoid what you just said when there are five kids i mean i was the only kid and the only one so i made the call but if i had other brothers and sisters i probably would have had a, either an argument or fight or maybe we have never been able to to, to figure out you know in right. time you know i'm too late so i think there's two points that I, I just covered one is the documentation the other one is the decision making and and and, and knowing so so but in your experience uh when you wrote the book i'm sure there's real stuff that 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 you've put in there so why don't you share with us some of that i mean i i just kind of digress a little bit on, on my own story because it i think it fills in exactly yeah. in, in the in the book you know concept but tell us about the core piece of, of the book and the elements there and, and the recommendations within the book there's one story in there that that's a true story. When I was an intern, which is your first year of training after you finish medical school, um, when you're on call at night, you're covering for other people. So we would have an A team and a B team. And at night you cover both. And um, one of the patient's families asked to speak to me and it was not a patient of mine. So I, I had a little note card that said what she, you know, what her, diagnosis was and what the situation was and any labs I needed to follow up, whatever. So I read that and went to the bedside and it was a, an older African-American woman who had suffered a stroke and was on a ventilator. And the expectation was that, that it wasn't going to be a, a good outcome. And so I went in the room and her whole family was at the bedside and, and one of the sons asked to talk to me. And he said, why do you get to play God and turn off her ventilator tomorrow? And, and here I am fresh out of medical school going, uh, I'm not turning off her ventilator. Um, but we had that discussion. And, and at the time, I gratefully had had some, some decent training in it. And so I explained to him, you know, God gives us the ability to save people and, and you know, develop the ventilator and breathe for people. But he also gives us the knowledge to know when that's not useful anymore and that we actually can keep her body alive almost 
indefinitely, but it's not life. Um, and then obviously I said, you know, you need to talk to your, <laughs> your actual doctor in the morning. Um, but so I put that scenario in the book and, and that's a true one. The, the idea of somebody, so, so the laws currently, there's a few states where you can choose um, that you want your doctor to give you something to help you kill yourself. So it's physician-assisted mm -hmm. dying. Mm -hmm. um, that's available in certain states, but the patient has to be able to self-administer that. So for a patient like this on a ventilator who's not able to communicate, that's not an option. The only option is to turn things off. And if, as sometimes happens, they don't actually die because the the ability to breathe is, is handled by a very primitive part of your brain, not the conscious part that we think of as being a person, but the we call it the lizard brain, the part that'll work no matter what. Um, they might not die when you turn off the ventilator. And then what do you do? Now they're on tube feeds, right? Because they can't eat for themselves, but they aren't going to die just by turning off the ventilator. And so then you have to withhold food for them to die, which is one of the things that I bring up in the book. And, and how, how does that look? Watching someone starve to death is a, you know, they're not a lot awake and complaining about how hungry they are, but, but still something to have to watch because it can take a week, right? We don't, we, we give them usually water, but we don't give protein and, and glucose and, and sugars. Um, and so that's sort of what, what we talk about in the book is, is, and I try to, to not preach. I try to say, here's one person with this opinion and one person with this opinion. And I don't say which one's right. I, I try to give, I think it's very intellectually challenging to take a, a murky issue and, and find rational arguments on all sides and try and make them all sound rational. Um, so I find that fascinating and fun. And and so I hope that's what I do in the book. But the, the main point is that the person needs to make their wishes known. And obviously it's important when you're terminal to make that clear, but bad things happen. And those are the probably the most heartbreaking ones are when a young person who um, is expecting to live a much longer life has something traumatic happen and they've never had that discussion with anyone. And then a grieving family is stuck trying to make those decisions. And what you'd really like is for somebody to say there is zero hope. And we just can't say that. We don't have that sort of, of science behind us. But, but when it's, we can say it's highly, highly unlikely, and then people cling on to that little tiny piece and it makes their decision-making very, very difficult. Thank you. I mean, you, you're, you're covering a lot of different, you know, real deep elements here. And I, I want to just take a moment for and break them down a little bit. So the first thing is talking about living, right? Because someone is intubated, you know, is that really living? And then and 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 there's two two levels of this to your point. Some people do pull through and you know they become better. I mean they go to coma, whatever, and then they come out of it and they just live a happy life. And so you can't dismiss that option. And that's that's the technology and why it was developed and, and it works. But then you have the other where they don't pull out, you know, and through through this whole you know ordeal, and then all of a sudden you're stuck with the the, the actual dilemma, right? Then you have the the other pieces that the the fact of uh, hospitals and 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 you know uh, systems in general, when someone is in front of them, they make the call. I mean, intubating stuff is not something that usually, unless there is a DNR or the a, a DNI, you know, doctors will proceed, 
and and hospitals will proceed. And that's the other part, you know, in in the likelihood of someone elderly, you know, who is hospice and, you know, maybe terminal, it's a little obvious and there is more discussion about it and there's prep to it. But to your point, someone suddenly just gets into an accident or something and they, they're plugged uh, and there is no directives. There's nothing else. There's nobody that's actually making the decision. The hospitals will proceed with the, the clinical piece of it. And therefore they're going to put yeah, that person under, you know, the anesthesia and plug them in and do all the stuff, the ventilators. And now the, to your point, families are going to have to make call. And you're right. You're never going to say, oh, there's no hope because you can't take that. And you can't say that they're going to survive because now you get sued if they don't. <laughs> so, so, so which way it is, it is a pickle. I mean, you can't, you can't really do it about that. That's a tough one. And, and you're right. It's just, you know, it becomes difficult because everybody hopes that no matter how bad the situation is, that something's going to turn. Even there's just a bleep like, oh my God, you know, it's happening. Right. And that's exactly what people have that hope. Uh, to me, when I gave my story, I, I, it was a very difficult because like in my mind, like, did I make the right choice? You know, should I have, you know, had him, you know, get plugged? But, you know, I mean, I have a different opinion about religious and, and life in general. So I had to believe that, you know, if he had pneumonia before and he made, you know, he made it through. If he's going to make it, he would have made it anyway. So therefore, if, yeah. his, if his body is going to give up, there's nothing we can do. And he's not going to leave until his, it's time. So, so there is that, you know, some rationale from the religious, you know, believe in the fate. But, but scientifically, I also knew that, you know, there's going to be a point where I'll have to make that call and before or after. Now, my dad didn't put the stuff. The only thing we made sure that there is a documentation of DNI and DNR. And so that was it. So that helped the process. But do, you're your, right. do your listeners understand what DNR and DNI are? Probably not. So <laughs> do, not resusc- do not resuscitate and do not intubate. So basically, you're not uh, plugging someone, you cannot give them a tube and you cannot really uh, do anything to CPR them, you know, it's over. Right. So you let them be and, uh, and, and, and they can live. And that, that happens in accidents, for example, if you have that, it's over, they're not going to do anything for you. You know, they just bring you in and it's over. Yeah. So it's really important to make sure that when you get admitted to a hospital that they know your wishes prim- at, at my hospital, they ask every single time, which feels a little bit weird when you're getting admitted for something minor. And they're saying, if you were to die, do you want to? And you're like, what are you going to do to me? Um, but the other thing is, if you're going to have surgery, and this comes up in the book, generally, we put people to sleep. And when we put people to sleep, we put a breathing tube in. So that's intubating. So if you have a DNI, then we sort of rescind it for the surgery. And then once we take the breathing tube out, it's reactivated. So that gets a little bit confusing to some people. Um, But those are really important things to make sure are clear with your caregivers. Yes. Well, actually, just just as a note, since you you covered something there, I wasn't clear about. So so when people are going under anesthesia, not in general, they don't get intubated on general, but some cases, I guess, not every case. The vast majority get intubated if you're having surgery, especially if it's in your abdomen. We pretty much always have to intubate you or if you're having brain surgery, we pretty much always intubate you. See, I, I wasn't even, I, I didn't even think so. I mean, I thought you know, they just put a needle and, you know, you get to sleep, but I didn't oh, realize no. that. So, so I, again, for audiences, you know, news to That's me. That's why you uh, have a sore throat after anesthesia because <laughs> we put a tube in your throat. See, that explains that. And, you know, yeah. I, 
I, I wasn't aware. So thank you for clarifying that. And so that was interesting to hear. And, and again, folks, but you're right. You know, when you go to the hospital, uh, my mom went to surgery. Uh, my wife had a surgery and, and they did go under anesthesia. And, th- th- you know, that's, that's documentation. You know, it's, they tell you all the stuff that you have to sign before you actually get in under. And there's also a risk. I mean, there's no hospital or doctor that's going to give you hundred percent. We're going to put you out, you know, and you'll be fine you have there's always a waiver there's always like you know potential risk you know when you go under so it's 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 a challenge and so that when you accept it and sometimes you have no choice <laughs> you know right. you know you have to go to surgery and you just like you know just give in it's okay i'm just if i come back great if i don't <laughs> sign out everybody forgive me for what i did then hopefully I, I didn't hurt anyone and that's it right it is a tough i mean i'm laughing about it but it's a tough you know place to for anyone i mean and this is not for someone that, that are hospice and, and they're and live, you know, or like, you know, towards their their, their uh, uh, terminal in stages. This is this could be anyone, uh, you know, at any given age, you know, things can happen to anyone. And, and that's life in general. I mean, really, we live, we live. And, you know, one of the main things that we have experienced recently is the pandemic. You know how many people. They were breathing normal. The next thing they're actually in the hospital and they're intubated. Some made it, some didn't. And, and that's 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 reality. And uh, a lot of hospitals, I mean, the first thing in the pandemic we heard about was ventilators. It, it was the biggest you know, tool that's been used for this pandemic. It was it was it was scarce. It was some states didn't even have enough of them. Hospitals were, you know, uh, overwhelmed. But but that was the protocol. You come in, if you you get into oxygen, whatever, and the next thing you know, if it's not happening, we need to make it happen for you. And so now that's that's and some people didn't have a say in it. You know, parents were not, you know, able to get into hospitals. Folks didn't even have access to the hospitals. People were sent into the ER and then that was it. They get admitted, they get processed. And, and basically, and I mean processed in just in terms of uh, the hospital process, not in a bad way, <laughs> just, to, just to be clear. So so but that's the thing. And then they get into the hospital and now there's a decision made for them in a way. And a lot of folks didn't have the right to to even get in because they could not even get to the hospital. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a tough time, you know. And last year was was just you know, or the couple of years ago was bad. I mean, even last year we still had some difficulties. Now it's less, you know, crazy, and uh, even with Omicron, it's better. But go ahead, sorry. It's crazy at my hospital still, but um, but the summer with Delta, that was the first one that really affected pregnant women, where we were having a lot of. Pregnant women with COVID and and some very, very sad, bad outcomes. Um, we're doing a little better with Omicron, but we're still having a lot of a lot of pregnant women in the ICUs and get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated, even if you're pregnant. It's really important. Wow. I mean, well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's that, you know, I didn't put the analogy in terms of pregnant women and 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 I guess the impact on the babies and all the stuff. I mean, that's yeah. that's it's you know, real. Like, Wow. I, again, well, you're right. Delta was was a tough one. <laughs> I mean, Delta was just as bad as probably even sometimes worse. I mean, I did not have the original, you know, COVID. I mean, I went through it for over a year and a half until last summer. And, you know, it was it. But luckily, I had the mild, you know, uh, That's good. A two or three days, you know, at home, nothing, you know, bad. But but I've known people that have been hospitalized. And, you know, uh, my mother-in-law actually got hospitalized for a whole month. And a lot of people around oh. her passed you know, literally, you know, uh, it, it was, it was a rough, you know, time and uh, Omicron to your point is, is not as, as bad, but, but we have to be aware that it's still out there. It's still risky and people are actually still getting, you know, hospitalized and some, you know, less, less, I guess, fatal, you know, uh, outcomes, but, but nevertheless, it's there. 
So, so, so let's go back to the fatal intent. <laughs> so you meant, you said something very deep about um, the decision-making of someone that's alive. You know, you, we all have, I mean, I believe that we all should, we, sh we should all have a will personally. Uh, and, 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 and people think like, well, I don't have to, I'm, you know, I'm still healthy. We just have, it doesn't matter. I mean, that could be anything. And part of the will is who is going to be making decisions for you. Right. And yes. that's your proxy or surrogate and then, or, or power of attorney, whatever the case may be that, you know, depending on how you choose to do this with your, I guess, you know, uh, law firm <laughs> or lawyers but at the end of the day it's important because that's going to determine a lot of things and to your point if something happens this is like the organ donor piece right i mean some people put that in place in advance so it's 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 in that documentation or whatever uh this is actually even beyond because now you have to you know give somebody the authority over you and when you are unable to really make that that call and that, that's a difficult test. Now, here's all, like to your point earlier, when you have people that have multiple folks, uh, how do you pick one? <laughs> that's a challenge. Yeah, so the legally, the person responsible for you, if there isn't one, is your next of kin. So your parents, unless you're married, and then it's your spouse. And if none of them are available, then it's your children. If none of them are available, then it becomes your siblings. So they have a very strict hierarchy. But if you have a healthcare surrogate named, then they become the primary decider and they recommend that you have a primary and a secondary for that, because if that person was in the car with you and died, then yeah, who's going to make decisions for you now? Um, and so that's, again, something the forms are very, I think, self-explanatory. They are state dependent. And so if you go to different websites to try and uh, download the forms. It's not hard to find them, but you do need to make sure it's the correct one for your state. Um, and so you name a healthcare surrogate and that person needs to know what you want. And even in addition to that, I think you need the, the document that actually says, I would like, you know, I would like tube feeds or I absolutely do not want tube feeds, that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And, uh, and it's really, I mean, that's been available for a very long time, but but somewhere around only about a quarter of Americans actually have any sort of document outlining what they would like and, uh, and de designating someone to make those decisions. Well, thank you, doctor, for that. Uh, one thing, uh, th let's clarify, because I think the proxy is someone that just can do things, even if you are available, they can still do that, make decision equal as you, even when you're conscious. It depends. A healthcare proxy cannot I mean, it depends on the definition that is in the sure. document. Most of them will say, and only if you are incapacitated to make that decision, which has to come from a physician who decides that you're incapacitated. There are other proxies for other purposes, but the but, healthcare proxy is different. But surrogate is really, they basically become you in decision-making period. Yeah. And, and they have a different name depending on which state you're in. Right. And again, again, and like in New York, for example, the healthcare proxy, you know, even takes presence, I think, uh, over the power of attorney in, in this matter, because it's the ultimate document for health. Um, so every state is different. You're right. And um, uh, but 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 I just wanted to maybe if there's any difference in terms of what those terms mean, uh, but they're they, they kind of do the same functionality to right. hear someone is got the full capacity and authority to make a call uh, and a decision on your behalf when you can make one. And uh, again, it's a tough one. Now, you did mention something interesting earlier about the some states having the ability to allow people to almost basically 
kill themselves or terminate, you know, their, their life. And, uh, you know, and also you mentioned something earlier about like when that person came to you when you were still in your first year and like you're playing the power of God and you can't decide and whatever that that's a tough one because, uh, again, it's like, can we plug? Can we unplug? Can we plug? That's like, somebody is like, literally, if you're religious, you will think about that. Like, who are you to actually make that call? Only God takes life, right? And so therefore now it becomes a very challenging, you know, proposition when you're, and you're right, you're not making that call. It's the family has to make the call. But but then for the folks that make the, the decision themselves, when allowed, allowed by the law in the state, and, uh, you know, they just basically, they don't want to live in pain. And it's, you know, they just want to end it. That that's that's where it can becomes a very touchy because now they're making that decision, but their family may not be for it, and you know they'll have to go to court to get the the okay for it. I'm not actually. If if you in order to qualify for physician assistant death, you have to be um, deemed competent. So the family has no say. You decide that you want to do this, and you you have to sign something and you have to sign it two weeks later and you have to have a written document that says exactly what you want and two physicians have to concur that you are first of all terminal within six months and that you are of sound mind to make this decision and then they give you a prescription that you have to get filled you have to be able to take the pills on your own it can't be administered by someone else it's very strict to try to prevent any sort of slippery slope to it Um, But it does bring up the interesting concept of right to die versus duty to die. So I live in a state where I can choose this and now I'm worried about being a burden on my family. So do I feel obliged to choose this? And uh, and so it's just just super interesting how different um, ways you can take all of this. And and it's it, the other thing that's interesting is it's been legal in some states for quite some time, and it's really not being used all that much. So um, and and of the ones who request this the prescription, only about a third to a half proceed to use the prescription and and end their lives. A lot of them end up dying of something else in between. Wow. Well, I mean, listen, I don't think anyone at any given day would would assume that that's something that they want to have to, to, to call, <laughs> you know, everybody's, everybody hopes that, you know, you go to sleep and that's it. And uh, it, it will be an easy one. Right. And, and that's not the, re- the reality of things. I mean, people, again, they just, I mean, I know in medical terms, we, there's the word of expired. <laughs> I, I am not, a, you know, partially not a fan of that word in, when it comes to humans, but, but it is the word that's used in, in, in hospital settings and healthcare. Uh, but but you know, no one wants to think about them like they have an expiration date and and they're basically like you can and, and it's funny because I have seen this with my eyes that you know in ICUs and stuff when people pass, I mean there could be five people, six people laying there, you know, dead, and you know, the staff is just, you know, and they they've been they've seen enough that they it's it's okay, just a, a routine day. But but for most of us, that would be like devastating to know that there's someone that's that's laying you know uh, next next door that's dead right so there's a lot of this the, the, it, it touches on on the religious the the moral the ethical and you know and and then the science and and really what the practice is so there's there's a lot of opinions about it and and you're right it's a when you have more people that can make a call or they they just have to be part of the decision and no one is going to allow well not no one uh, i'll stay correct i'll stay, I'll stay corrected here because i know that there are 
cases where, to your point, people have made that decision, they went through the process, and they did actually end their life. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's tough for them, and usually because of pain, and they, they just can't suffer anymore. And, and you're right. I mean, earlier you mentioned something about even when you unplug someone, uh, they have a tube, you're feeding them. I mean, is that really, are they really living? Are they feeling pain? Uh, it, it, you can sedate them all you want, but I mean, we don't know what, what, what this whole thing is. And it's probably hurting their children or their family members because seeing someone in that stage is not going to be easy, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, just not, uh, I mean, this whole topic, like I said, it's going to be real touchy for people because it's sensitive and people like, you know, no one wants to talk about that. I mean, in general, that is, is not something that, you know, people want to just, you know, you know, have a discussion about, but it's reality, it's life. And every living thing dies, unfortunately. And uh, it's, again, part of reality, we have to be aware of it. And no one knows how that ends. And, you know, understanding what the laws of the land are, and you know, what you have, to your point, the rights, and the, the duties and all the stuff uh, for everyone, uh, person, you know, or their family members and and really understanding those dynamics can make a big difference. So now let's talk about, I mean, first of all, the fatal intent, you know, I, 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 I the, the book name is just interesting, because it's, it's, this is like, really your intent to terminate life. And this is not criminal, I mean, not talking about intent, to, fatal intent in the criminal world, but, but this is more like in the, you know, the health settings or the healthcare settings, which someone is really sick, and they have to have the full intent that it's happening or even not them someone else has to make that intention that they're gonna uh you know unplug someone that's already in their you know a tube or intubated 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 and 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 that's that's a tough one right so so what else in the book um do you really kind of um highlight in terms of people parents uh parents or actually kids because this could go both ways uh, and I think parents is even harder, you know, because because sometimes when someone is aged, you know, people have to your point, the, the at least they, they know it's going to come to the time where it, they, there's going to be a, uh, a separation and somebody's going to, you know, depart. But when someone is young and vibrant and the parents are always excited, I want to see my kids grow and see my grandkids and so on. So when all of a sudden something happens, that's that's a, a very tough one. I think that changes the dynamics from from one age group to the other, because uh, if you're a parent, no one wants to see, of course, we don't want to see anybody hurt, but when you know someone is older and they live the happy life and long life and they get into that, you don't want them to suffer. So you almost make peace with that. Mm-hmm. But when someone is young, you, you can't, I mean, you know, and, and again, I have seen young people depart, you know, in life, in my own surroundings and, you know, it happens every day and uh, it's always devastating for the parents. And sometimes when someone, goes to the hospital and now the decision is made that they have to be plugged and they're in the machines and no one knows if they're coming back uh, that stuff so what what do you tell the folks i mean is there anything you say in the book to maybe ease up based on experience or at least you know some of the practices out there one of the first rules of fiction i learned was never hurt a child um and so i focused all of my badness uh for the most part happening to grown-ups um, there is one scenario of a, and so it's, again, it's things that we see. So the child who's got severe uh, mental delay, who's not um, functional in any way that we recognize as functional, um, 
not necessarily in pain, but not able to communicate in any meaningful way, not able to control their body. Um, and then we're doing procedures on them, but it's not really improving their quality of life. And, and so at some point you wonder why we're doing this to them. Um, it may not hurt them, but it's not helping them. And, and maybe it is hurting them if, if it's just such a challenge to decide where in their is you know so do no harm is sort of one of our mantras and and sometimes doing something is is more harm than good um but who makes that decision and and so i do address that a little bit in there um but you're you're 100 percent right it's it's watching parents deal with sick children is just heartbreaking and the place i see it mostly because i don't do a lot of pediatrics i but i do obstetrics and so we see tiny babies that are born too early and parents making decisions about aggressiveness of resuscitation on a baby who's got a really tough road ahead of them. Um, and it's God willing, you'll never be in that position. Um, and obviously the child can't make any decisions on their own in that case. So it's entirely the parents. And sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't be easier if the doctors just said, this isn't reasonable. We're going to, you know, cuddle your baby. We're going to let it pass instead of saying what do you want us to do do you want us to go full court press there's a 0.1 percent chance it'll work what parent is going to say nah let my kid die right i mean it's almost cruel to put it on the parent but in our society that's our this whole patient autonomy is 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 to that which i a hundred percent get but the ability of people to grasp the odds is uh is excruciatingly small um it's, it challenges everybody i mean it challenges the doctors to to try and quantify and it challenges family members to 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 grasp the the gravity of the situation and and what that child is going to go through to try to keep them alive um for a, a not great outcome that I'm, I don't do neonatology for a reason. I wouldn't want to have to be the one trying to counsel people on that. Wow, that, that is, that is tough. And I have to say, you said something about our society and things, but, but really, I mean, even because of the way the laws are, any healthcare service provider would never, you know, get into that decision. I mean, it has to be given back to the, the actual patients or the yeah. family, because all you have to say is the wrong thing. And now, once this is all settled, then you have a whole slew of malpractice and lawsuits and it gets crazier and, and no one wants, that's why, unfortunately, no one will ever give you, to your point earlier, nobody's going to give you 100% of anything. And there's that's always right. a chance that it's not going to work. And, and, and that actually works both ways because it, it can give hope and it can take hope yeah. <laughs> or it can scare people at the same time. And, and that touches on the subject of now faith and religion because there is an ethical point. I'm sure there's a lot of debate about this topic and it's not, I mean, I've heard it, I've seen it. It's a big deal. And so, so even when science meets religion, sometimes there's a clash. <laughs> it's been this way for, for centuries, but when it comes to the, the topic of life, you know, depending on the beliefs and stuff, you know, like we can't do this, you know, only God takes life and, you know, you can't make a decision. We can't block them, you know? And so it becomes very difficult. Was there anything that you've covered about that, uh, you know, concept? at least how to deal with that conflict how to deal with it not not really hospitals at least all the hospitals i've dealt with have of people of various faiths on staff that will mm. come and help the family deal with 
from their religious standpoints will offer when we don't expect babies to do well. If I know that the family is Christian, I'll suggest that we try and get someone in to baptize the baby if that is something they would like, that sort of stuff. Um, in my experience, the people who have a very strong faith actually deal much better with all of this than, uh, than people who, who don't. They, not 100%, obviously, but, but many of them find meaning and solace that uh, is difficult for other people to grasp. Um, well, that, that, that is a great point, Doc, because you're right. Someone has, again, I give you the example. In my case, I, I know that life and death are, are, are together and there's a time we have to accept it. And, you know, uh, we all depart at a day or another. And so I kind of made that call base. Like I said, I had friends in the medicine and the clergy and I, I got both advices and, and I was able to make that, that sound decision. But, but you're right. And you have to accept it because if you have faith, you know that it, when it's time, it's time, right? And so uh, you're right. There's, there's also the acceptance of, of, of the ordain or the destiny, right? You know, and, and, and other, you know, contexts, it may not be like, why? You know, why my son, why my parent, why this? And it becomes a question mark. And now it's, it's a debate and no, do whatever it takes. And, and, I, and, and I think there's another aspect now that happens and we can touch about that. I'm not sure if it's in the book, but now the cost. I mean, when someone is in a hospital bed and they're plugged, I mean, that's a lot of, you know, uh, dollars and, and, and that are being paid for that particular bed and, 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 and supply. Uh, that's a big debate, too. It is. And, you know, one thing we we would never I'm in a hospital that we don't ever turn patients away. We're not a private hospital where the, the you know, it's funded in part by the state. And so we offer care to everyone, regardless of what their ability to pay is. And, and I have very rarely had a patient say, well, I'd like that, but how much is it going to cost me? Now that discussion may occur outside of my hearing because I'm not, but, but I've never heard a patient, you know, having a baby say, no, let's not put them in the ICU because we can't afford it. Right. That's not a discussion that occurs. Um, and so we end up with extraordinary healthcare costs. And you could argue from a societal standpoint, where should that money go? Should the money that it costs to save one super preemie baby that could vaccinate an entire state's worth of children for a year, you know, where is the cost supposed to be? But we also know that as humans, we see a single person way better than we see a population, right? So the whole thing about a train track where you have to divert the train away from one child, but it might kill five people and everybody chooses to divert the train because that one little kid where you're actually costing more lives, except you can't see them. So it's, it's sort of the same issue. Um, there's been a lot of studies on end of life and what the money costs are. And even just having these end of life discussions that we've been talking about um, really have a huge impact because just like you were saying about your father, you probably prevented some care that would have been very expensive. And so just in the last 30 days, I pulled up one study, they compared families that 
where the patient had had that discussion with their caregiver or who hadn't, these were cancer patients. And in the last 30 days of life, the median cost for a patient who did have that discussion was $1,000 healthcare costs. And if they didn't have the discussion, it was $23,000. So we err on the side of acting if we don't know not to. And so we end up spending a lot of money on what is probably undesired care, but we don't have medical legally, we don't have any choice. We have to intubate and put them on a ventilator and admit them to the ICU and do all those sorts of things. And later we might turn it off, but that doesn't change the fact that it costs a lot of money to, to do all those things. So, so that goes back to the same thing about having those conversations and, and maybe there needs to be better legislation that makes it easier. There was some back when I was in medical school about was not intubating the same as withdrawing as turning off a ventilator. And they decided that those were the same, that, that it was okay for us to put a breathing tube in because we could turn off the ventilator because we didn't want to have to make that decision right when we were about to put the tube in. Um, mm. And so that helped a lot, but there's, there's still a lot of angst amongst physicians, not so much my anesthesiologist, but critical care docs about um, what do you offer? When is it appropriate to say this isn't going to help? And and making families have to navigate all of that. Well, doctor, I mean, you, you again. You, it's it's amazing what you're talking about right now is is very deep. And one of the things, the the, the well, not the, the the life. What's the value of a life, right? And and, and there's no one that can actually. <laughs> give you a value for life everybody is valuable right and there's no no money that can buy life and so therefore the decision is 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 beyond that that's why people are like do whatever it takes just do it right and you know like in my case right it was not that i did not want to save my dad i mean if i knew that there was a chance that he would you know that that would have made a difference but but from my, the medical you know doctors that i talked to from the fact that, you know, we know that he was already like, you know, in his, his real end days, it was, there was no, no, and like I said, then I consulted with the fate part of it. And then at the end of the day, like if he pulled off the first time from the pneumonia, he would have pulled off an hour. And, he, and that was, that was the, the easy way to, to, to almost comprehend it, or at least to digest it. Uh, but, but some people, you know, would not make that call because they want to do the best and they try, right? Uh, did that, again, I'm living with that. Does that mean I made a mistake? No. I mean, did I ever have a doubt that I that I was the one that didn't give him his, his full ample chance? No, I don't even believe in that because I believe it was his time. Okay. But that's me. Some people will agree. Some probably people will disagree. If it was my dad, I would I would have done whatever. Let, let them plug him in. Well, you could have, and, and that's exactly you could, but the problem is now you have to make that call to pull that, that plug yourself. And now, trust me, that would not be that, that easy. And the outcome eventually would be the same if he was terminal with cancer. So, and how long right. is that? You know, so not only they he will be in a bad position or at least suffering somehow, but you're also going to be suffering because the uncertainty of the fact that he's there, he's not there. You go see him, you see him in pain, and you're there, and you can't do anything about him. That that yeah. makes a very difficult. And and people may not even realize what that means until you have someone that is laying in there and you can't do anything about it. And yeah. you know, again, the death I'm, watches are awful. Where people exactly. are sitting at the bedside because they don't want them not to to die alone, but they have we have no ability to say it's going to be three days from tomorrow or it's going to be in two hours. That's 
it disrupts their lives if they have to move it to gain, you know, to the hospital from out of town and put themselves up in a hotel and, and yeah, it's a, it's an awful system. Well, awful well one situation. it is, we, we don't wish that on anyone. And, and frankly, I hope that no, you know, people don't have to go through it. And, but in, in reality, it, it can happen and it happens and, you know, people are going through it every day and the pandemic had made it very clear that it happened and happened to millions, not just, you know, in, in, in specific categories of some diseases. I mean, that, that was like pandemic wise. <laughs> so everybody everywhere around the world almost experienced it. And it's, it's a tough place. And, and again, the cost itself, as you said, you know, when I made the call, I didn't even think about the cost of the hospital stuff, you know, because you had insurance and everything, but you're right. Some people may not have the insurance, for example, they private pay and they would probably sell everything. And, you know, I would also, I mean, normally if you have no choice, you'll do whatever it takes to save your, your, your family. Right. But, but still, it is still a cause that, that somebody is actually uh, having that burden. Right. Even and, if you have insurance, it's still exactly. a cost that so, that money isn't going somewhere else. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so, is the question is was it necessary was it going to make a difference you know did we have to and there's also the debate that there is the the abuse part of it like you know why not let's plug him in you know it's a you know i've heard that that debate before when some people say well the hospitals may just take advantage of it and keep someone a plug because that costs more you know revenue there is that discussion and there's that 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 extreme theory as, uh, out there as well. So there's no you're never going to make people satisfied in any right. way. There's going to be one on this side, there's going to be one on this side and the reality is it's a tough place and you're right. We don't have a final uh, you know way that we can measure this like no this is done, it's over, we can or yes we can do this and there's going to be results. So there's always that that a chance that people would have to uh, make the call. I think the core message today and, and I'll give you, a, you know, uh, the, the final statement here to tell us what what your message would be from the book, or at least what would you advise people in general? Uh, for me, I, I'm getting it is just make sure you get at will, make sure you make those those, uh, you know, uh, assignments, I guess, while you're still healthy and at any given age. <laughs> so so what would be your, uh, I guess, final advice to, to the, the listeners and the viewers right now? Really, really kind of the same. Actually, if you go to my website, which is tuliano.com on the resources page. I have links to um, various places I thought were the most explanatory of, of getting those documents completed. Um, but at the very least, just have the conversation, however painful it is to do. Um, put it on your calendar and have that conversation. And then every 10 years, have that conversation again, because we know people's wishes change and evolve based on new diagnoses and new of living situations, you get married, you get divorced, whatever. Um, but just um, think about it and um, pray about it if that's what you do. Um, but it's it's much easier if these decisions are made prior to the time it's needed. Well, doctor, that that that's that's as deep as it gets. That's actually as as simple as it gets. Actually, honestly, and you do have the resource. So so I will actually share. I already shared the link on the description. Oh, the show, so okay. so it'll be available to people. They can click in and and see what. And again, depends on what state you're in. You can actually certainly get the information for that state. You can download those documents. And, um, you know, I, again, I mean, the healthcare settings, we actually offer that. So when we talk to people and we always have that available, someone wants Excellent. especially for long-term care, but again, I know it's available. So in hospitals, you can literally get one from any of the providers out there, they have them. And so it's, it's, it's out there as, as at least the healthcare process. And by the way, it's not just for 
end of life. I mean, that could be for other things. I mean, just just making decisions while the person, you know, for surgery and things, or if they're not able to 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 do things, even for insurance purposes. Believe it or not, you know, that document works because someone can actually represent you and become and make decisions on what coverage you would have. <laughs> so so we use it actually for the insurance purposes. But I oh, know wow. it's That's yeah, great. Yeah, it's available. So, um, but you know. It is what it is. I hope that, you know, we've learned a lot, you know, uh, throughout the show, uh, doctor, you know, you've, you've been very uh, valuable to us in sharing something different in, and and a needed uh, subject because uh, people may not want to discuss it. And we did, <laughs> we touched on it and we brought it up to them. And now it's people are listening, watching, they should be able to at least have an idea what, what we're talking about and what they should be doing. Uh, they don't have to take, you know, advice, but Hey, <laughs> right. Hopefully always. they do. Hopefully they do. Well, so doctor, uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for all the, the insights here. And, um, you know, I appreciate the time here. folks. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Folks, thank you for watching and, and, and uh, listening on iHealth Radio. Uh, your host, Hurricane H. We'll be talking soon. Different topic, different show, different guests. Bye for now.